Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. If I'm not mistaken, wasn't I on the air with you all yesterday? The answer is yes. But is it okay for me to be back on the air the day after being today? Why not? Uh, I don't recall there being any uh, regulations or restrictions, uh, but nonetheless, um, it's good to be on the air. And what's even more important is to keep the momentum going with our uh, series that we're on being the War of 1812 in Wisconsin, the Battle for Prairie du Chêne by Mary Elise Antoine. Well, we're going to be discussing in this um, podcast episode, um, what we're going to be discussing, rather, I should say, is about um, Robert Dixon, uh, the British um, Indian agent. Not only are we going to be talking about Robert Dixon, but how about His Majesty's Faithful Indian Allies? Well, let me ask you all this. Who is the King of England during uh, the War of 1812. Matter of fact, he's been King of England. Going into 1812, he's been King of England for just over half a century. How about King George III? Remember, folks, he was coronated, or rather his coronation took place in October of 1760. He took over for his grandfather, George II, King George III, I know when he became King of England, he was in his early 20s. He wasn't even 25 years of age. So it's probably fair to say that he had to be, obviously for one, over the age of 20. But he, when I think of early 20s, I think of 22, 23. So it's probably fair to say that he might have been at least 22 years of age when he became King of England. So... In a little over half a century, going into this War of 1812, King George III is almost close to 75 years of age. So you think about what he's witnessed in his lifetime. Did he ever think he would that his country would be at war again with America, knowing that 30-some years earlier his country surrendered um, to an empire? Well, I wouldn't say rather I take it back an empire, but surrendered to a country that in the eyes of many Britons, was comprised of peasants with pitchforks. That's how they viewed the Continental Army. But once again, is it fair to say that maybe King George is viewing the Americans as peasants with pitchforks? Well, the United States has grown has grown up quite a bit in the last uh, 30 years since officially winning its independence from England. But what the, the United States is struggling to... Um, in terms of struggling to uh, get its independence on is economic independence, as I mentioned from yesterday, in terms of uh, not being um, harassed on the high seas, all in the names of impressment, to um, unreasonable search and seizures upon uh, their cargo ships. So yes, uh, that is whom is still ruling England going into the War of 1812, being King George III. So our first uh, lead-off uh, lead uh, question for this uh, podcast episode uh, will be the following. What British major general became appointed in protecting Upper Canada? Does anybody want to take a, a stab at this? I'll give you some choices. Choice A, was it um, 
was it uh, Charles Cornwallis? Choice B, was it Banastray Tarleton? Choice C, was choice, is it choice C, Isaac Brock? The answer is choice C, Isaac Brock. Matter of fact, there is a um, city, or rather a village, a.k.a. town in Ontario, Canada, known as Brockville, Ontario. It just so happens to be, be named after uh, Major General Isaac Brock. Isaac Brock himself became very convinced that war between the United States and Britain was in fact inevitable. However, Isaac Brock is one of those um, commanders whom, um, from what I've read about him, is he's one of those commanders who's one step ahead of the game. And that's good. If you're going to be one step ahead of the game, in terms of being a military commander, that means you've got to be a, ahead of the game in all three phases. Offense, defense, and special teams. So, for Isaac Brock... From what I've garnered so far in leading in preparations leading for this pro, for this podcast episode, given the fact that he knew that war between his country and the United States was inevitable, he had already gone about establishing his army and militias under his command, ready for military combat at any given moment's notice. And you know, here. Um, Isaac Brock is now, you know, he's, yes, he's a commander for the, um, not just for the uh, British, but he has been appointed to protect Upper Canada. But is it fair to say that Isaac Brock has to have some kind of established contact in America? Of course. How else is he going to know the lay of the land? Whom can he turn to for this kind of assistance? He relies on Mr. John Dixon, the British Indian agent. So what kind of things do you think uh, Isaac Brock would have relied with regards to uh, turning to uh, John Dixon for uh, information-wise? Well, he uh, sought out um, John Dixon's knowledge about the Western Great Lakes, including uh, potential alliances with Indian tribes. In other words, it's one thing to um, fight a war with the enemy, but you've also got to establish contacts along the um, front, or rather in this case the western frontier fronts, not only with um, people who are British Indian, Indian agent traders, but perhaps you've got to have um, establishment with Indians whom have already um, established their ties to the mother country being England, but yet you also need to seek out those whom aren't 100% sure as to whose side they want to uh, be aligned with. After all, it's one thing to have alliances, but at the same time, if you don't seek out Indian tribes whom have not already established their alliances uh, as to whom they want to side with, you better get that taken care of soon, because if not, you never know um, who, who ends up uh, being your enemies uh, when least expected. Now, um, where is the site of British headquarters in Upper Canada? Is it in 
and this would be in Ontario, Canada, I should say. What city um, would do you think might be the um, the site for uh, British headquarters in Upper Ontario, Canada? Would it be uh, Toronto? Would it be York, or is it Ottawa? The answer is York. Matter of fact, folks, during this time, York, Ontario, will serve as the interim um, capital for all of Canada. And um, yes, there are provinces in Canada. Well, does anybody want to take a guess at what is the actual capital of Canada as an entire nation? The answer is Ottawa. Toronto is the capital of Ontario, but as for the actual entire capital for all of Canada, that is Ottawa. And Ottawa, is, how ironic, is in Ontario. All right, now here we are moving on to John Dixon. Uh, of course, we're going to be mentioning his name quite a bit in this uh, podcast episode, but I have a good feeling his name will be mentioned um, even more in other podcast episodes. But hey, I don't see anything wrong with that. Uh, just because we learn about someone in one, po- in one podcast doesn't mean that they won't be forgotten all for good. So uh, was John Dixon effective in getting Indian chiefs and their peoples below to side with Britain as war loomed? The answer is yes. Uh, Mr. Dixon is a very, um, he's a very smart fellow for one and two. He would remind me to a degree of um, Major General Isaac Brock. In other words, John Dixon is one who stays on the offense he also knows how to stay on the defense, and he also knows how to play special teams in ensuring that um, peace and, and relations are, um, are strong, not only with Indians whom are um, allegiant, whom are, um, how would I say it, whom have uh, sworn allegiance to the crown, but also have developed enough solid ties to where uh, any remote chance of um, any kind of treasonous act would not happen. You know, it's one thing to take an oath to a country, but you better um, hold up to your end of the bargain because if any Indian nation uh, engaged in any kind of traitorous act with the mother country, then obviously um, the alliance would be um, voided or what we would call um, removed or um um, what do you call it, or uh, banished altogether. It's fair to say that even for John Dixon, he knows that he's facing uh, trying times, and even the Indians are too. I mean, we, we learned that from yesterday's podcast, that uh, as war was becoming inevitable, there was all the more uncertainty as to whether or not Indian alliances that were already intact with England would still remain intact with the mother country. So, yes, John Dixon was very effective in getting Indian chiefs and their peoples below to side with Britain, and he gathered as many as 80 Indians. That doesn't seem like a high number, but it's a good number to start out with. He gathered as many as 80 Indians, and many of these tribal peoples had for some time lived nearby English traders, earning their respect. So it's one thing to have gathered 80 Indians, but the fact that many of these um, 80 Indians 
depending on the tribes that they um, were comprised of or associated with. They already had lived uh, nearby the English traders for, for an extensive period of time to where uh, trust and um, respect and unity had all been achieved. And what we learned earlier uh, from a previous podcast was that uh, many of these English traders had married into Indian families, most notably, well, you know, Indian women for that, for that uh, matter of fact, to ensure that the relations would be so firm and intact that any possibility of someone committing a treasonous act would be slim to none. You know, it's one thing to have a partnership but it's better also to marry within that uh, within the culture, so that the that the relationship itself is even ten or twenty times more effective compared to what it was when you first started out. So, uh, what's important about July 9th of eighteen twelve? General Isaac Brock received word that the United States had officially declared war against Britain back on June 18th. Okay, June 18th to July 9th, folks. You know, there's 30 days in June. Um, so after June 18th, you got 12 more days left in June. And then come July 9th, Isaac Brock finally gets the word that the United States officially declared war against Britain. That's nearly three weeks, folks. That's how old the news itself was. Does it concern Brock? Does it? Would you say that Isaac Brock is concerned that the United States declared war? Sure, I mean he knows he's got his work cut out, but but he knows at the same time that you know he's going to be all right because you know he's he can he can be rest assured knowing what John Dixon has done, and knowing that John Dixon has done his homework that makes Isaac Brock's job probably a lot easier. Now, um, this person's worth mentioning. He may not have the same status as Major General Isaac Brock, but he is worth pointing out. How about Captain Charles Roberts? Does anybody know who this man is? I didn't know anything about him until I read this book. But what makes Captain Charles Roberts an interesting character is that he is the captain of the 10th Royal Veteran Battalion. He was, char he was in charge of a um, fort, or rather I should say a post, at uh, Fort St. Joseph on the St. Mary's River above Lake Huron. What makes um, Charles Roberts' situation very um, daunting is that his post, being that it was... Um, at, at Fort St. Joseph on the St. Mary's River above Lake Huron, his post was the only one stationed, or rather I should say centered, where three of the five Great Lakes connected to one another. Meaning that with these three Great Lakes connecting to one another, that meant that goods and people were coming to and from Montreal, Canada. You know, it's one thing to have three Great Lakes connected with goods and people coming to and from Montreal, but what if the right people? What if the wrong people showed up? What if, um, what if Captain Charles Roberts um, endured a surprise attack from the Americans? And he had, and and we know that he doesn't have a whole lot of soldiers at his post. I think from what I read, he had about forty or fifty, which may seem like a big number, 
But it's one thing to have soldiers, but the fact that he doesn't have anybody else like Indians there helping him, that puts him at a disadvantage because he may know, he may have somewhat of an understanding of the land in terms of where his uh, fortified post is at, but having the Indians by your side would even be a bigger advantage to him because they know the layout of the land probably better than he does. So what do you think Captain Charles Roberts is going to do next? Well, do you think he's going to rely on John Dixon like General Isaac Brock had done? Absolutely. Considering that Dixon was well familiar with Mackinac Island, but he also gave Captain Roberts advice on where to land the boats to going about attacking American forts, or rather the American fort at Fort Mackinac, Mackinac Island. Is it fair to say, folks, that John Dixon knows just about everything in terms of the layout of the land, in terms of where not just not only where forts are located on a map, for example, but how to go about arriving to your destination via waterway? Absolutely. John Dixon is a seasoned veteran in this uh, line of work, folks, and it's fair to say that he doesn't miss out on anything. And the fact that he has been able to provide uh, British officers with, um, with valuable intelligence on where they can go about... Um, striking the enemy when it's least expected, that's all the more uh, advantage for why you have this man, given that he's in the right place, he's at the right place, and he's also in the right time uh, to help the British um, prepare for their uh, strategies and going to war uh, against uh, America on American soil. Now, July 16th, uh, Captain Roberts along with 230 Canadian traders and voyagers, including soldiers, and 320 Indians, folks. That's a huge number of Indians, 320, from multiple tribes, left St. Joseph Island en route to the American fort at Mackinac. Would you say that there was a, um, a gruesome fight? Or would you say there was no fight at all at Fort Mackinac? Well, I hate to say this, folks, but if you're on the American side, um, there was no, there was no um, fight at all, in large part because um, Captain Roberts, with the assistance of Indians, they made their voyage, and they arrived in the middle of the night to where they were able to fortify their post and with all the howling and commotion that the Indians did on purpose, it scared the Americans. As a matter of fact, their commander, I want to say uh, William Hull, pretty much um, he pretty much uh, waved the uh, flag of surrender without even putting up a fight. And as a matter of fact, he sadly was uh, well, it was for the right reasons, but he got court-martialed for his. Um, for his uh, failure to uh, not just only put up a fight, but to um, do anything that would have um, helped better fortify the uh, fort itself to where, his, um, to where his men could have put up somewhat of a decent fight against the uh, British. So 
Fort Mackinac pretty much became um, a victory without um, a shed of um, blood being um, being um, whatever you call it without a shed of blood being um, being torn to where a uh, loss of life took place. The British, I mean, neither side sustained any casualties, but it was one of those um, battles that, yes, it took place, but it, but no, no violence erupted. The surrender took place because of an act of cowardice on the American side. So the Fort Mackinac was easily secured by the British, thanks in part to Michael Dousman, who was a militia officer who knew all about Fort Mackinac's strengths and weaknesses. So yes, the Indians were doing their, um, what do you call it, special teams uh, trickery in terms of uh, making, what do you call it, not just noises, but you know, when they, but when they did their chants in terms of, um, not just for uh, ceremonial purposes, but as a means of um, like going to war and all that, that would have frightened the enemy. But even worse, having intelligence from someone from within whom knew all about Fort Mackinac even before this um, victory took place. So it's one thing to um, you know know about the area, but when you have someone who knows about the fort's strengths and weaknesses, that's a slam dunk victory right there to say the least. Was John Dixon a firm believer in the British cause? Well, if anybody says no, then all I can say is something's not right with them. And the only reason I'm just saying that is because what we've learned so far, and based off of what I said earlier, John Dixon doesn't miss out on anything. So if he's not missing out on anything, why would he want to think opposite about uh, the British cause? But the answer is yes. Considering that he went above and beyond to ensure that the Western Indians pledged their loyalty to Britain. But Dixon himself was one of those men that always went above and beyond to ensure that Indian tribes were well supplied at all times throughout the seasons. Okay? Think about it, folks. You know, the Indians and the agents and, and the European... Um, the British Indian uh, agent traders, they're trading. And they're not just trading goods. As I said earlier, many of these uh, Indian agents or even, you know, members of the British military have married into Indian families. So they are both looking, both of these sides or uh, groups of people are looking after one another. And if they are looking after one another so well, there there's no need or there's no reason there would be no reason under no circumstances for one of the parties to turn against the other that's what we would hope but sometimes history has proven us wrong when it comes to um loyalties or alliances that have been intact in for a number of years only for something to occur out of nowhere where a long-term alliance is no longer relevant if uh, the capture at uh, Fort Mackinac was bad enough for the Americans, how about the British capture of Fort Detroit? This capture of Fort Detroit ensured complete security for British forces along the entire Great Lakes, which allowed a smooth, which allowed for smooth navigable transport, transporting of goods 
between British traders and Indians to take place prior to winter's arrival. John Dixon knew how sacred the gifts were, as they represented a form of friendship to essential necessity come winter time. So remember, folks, you know, regardless of the season, yes, you trade your goods, but it's more than just trading goods, folks. You are receiving gifts as well. Gifts are essential because you have pledged your loyalty to a nation, and that nation has returned the favor and has has returned the favor on their end as well. You know, if one party can't return the favor, then how can there be an alliance? How can there be a how can there be a marriage? How can there be a perfect union between a nation and several Indian nations whom come to view this nation as their savior, their protector? After all, the Western Indians don't like the Americans. They see the Americans as the invasive species. What was John Dixon's overall outlook regarding the War of 1812? Do you think he still remained optimistic, knowing that Britain could that Britain had a, a realistic chance of winning this war? Sure. But despite the captures of Fort Mackinac and Detroit, John Dixon knew deep down inside that the longer this war lasted, the greater the likelihood of trade itself being negatively impacted. So, you know, the longer your war goes on, is it fair to say that the harder it could become to uh, land essential supplies that would keep alliances intact, not just for short term, but long term? Absolutely. So yes, you can uh, win as, you can secure as many battle victories as possible, but if goods don't flow, don't keep coming in like they're supposed to, then that can spell a sign of trouble. By mid-October mid of 1812, John Dixon will venture east. What do I mean by venturing east, folks? Will he go east from Detroit to, say, Niagara? Or would it mean going east into Canada? How about going east into Canada? He will go east to Montreal, where he provides other British officers valuable information regarding his activities on behalf of their government. So he could be going to uh, meet with other British officers who basically don't really even know anything about him. But once these other uh, commanders get to know him, don't think for one second that they're not going to like him. Because they will like him. I mean, they will see him as the real deal. What achievement got bestowed upon Robert Dixon come January 1813. The Br uh, British officer Sir George Prevost, and that, and matter of fact, there is a place in Ontario, Canada, called Prevost, Ontario, named after um, British officer Sir George Prevost. He gave Dixon the official position, or rather title, as agent for Indians in the Western um, nations, or, or rather. Western nation, Western frontier, 
And besides that title, Dixon also got made superintendent, which gave him the authority to employ up to five officers and 15 interpreters, as well as overseeing all purchases for goods and provisions from Indian department storekeepers. Well, he's paid his dues, folks, and he has done everything that's asked of him. Nobody, you know, told him to um, to do some of the other, other things that we mentioned earlier. He did all that out of the kind out of the out of uh, kindness. After all, well, some could say maybe he's doing that just for England. I think he's doing it for both. Is it a bad thing? No. But after all, somebody had to do the work, and hey. It was Robert uh, Dixon who did just that. Besides um, flags and medals, which are important, um, which can be important uh, gifts or presents to give to Indian nations, what other present was commonly given to the Indian tribes along the upper Mississippi and western Great Lakes by British traders, or, or, or I should say officers? How about a wampum belt? Like flags and medals, a wampum belt was viewed as a symbol of unity. Of course, when I think of wampum, I think of you know individual beads that um, that Indians used for jewelry purposes or maybe even for a ceremonial occasion. Uh, wampum was also used as a form of currency in some Indian uh, tribal civilizations. However, the wampum belt, which I kind of see now as like the granddaddy of all um, wampum attire, was viewed as a true symbol of unity. Uh, prior to the War of 1812, British relations with Indian nations along the, along the western Great Lakes remained solidly intact, largely in part from, from the 1764 Niagara Conference. Well, didn't the French and Indian War end a year earlier in 1763? Yes. So why was the 1764 Niagara Conference so important? Well, a British officer named Sir William Johnson helped oversee a pact establishment take place linking Britain and Indian nations of the Western Great Lakes as permanent trading allies. And it wasn't just a pact or a treaty where people signed their documents and went about their own ways and living happily ever after. This pact um, also required um, a, also required written uh, pledges or documents containing these written pledges and promises that would get recited on a yearly basis by British Indian agents as part of an annual gift exchange as part of the annual gift exchange ceremonies. I, I found this really interesting because, you know, it's one thing to do trading with Indian nations. It's one thing to exchange gifts. It's one thing to exchange goods. After all, both parties are dependent upon goods and services that one party can't uh, obtain, but the other one has, has, will always have access to. But to be able to establish a true alliance, 
it's fair to say that having a document, or not just a document, but a series of documents in play, in place being pledges and promises, would ensure the Indian nation that, hey, the British here are serious. They want to establish relations with us, not just for short term, but long term, and they are willing to stay by our side through thick and thin. They are going to protect us from the, um, from the, uh, in 1764, folks, there are only 13 colonies, uh, you know, as far north as New Hampshire and then as far south as Georgia. The British, in the eyes of the Indians, are going to protect them from uh, people in the east. In other words, that Proclamation Act of 1763 kept would keep the, um, the Americans from uh, establishing settlements uh, west, of the, um, west of the Appalachian Mountains. So that proclamation line or treaty is or Proclamation Act, rather, is going to be what's going to uh, keep the Indians, um, the Indian territorial lands, safe out of um, out of the uh, enemy's hands, being that of uh, of white settlers. But only time will tell if, in terms of what the future will hold. But here we are, close to 50 years, almost a half century, after this Niagara Conference took place. And what do you know? Britain, once again, is facing a war. But you know what? Maybe it's fair to say that Britain sees this as like the equivalent of a world war because, after all, the territory that is at stake, it may be on, it, it is on United States soil, but for Britain, they know that it's their territory and the Indians as well, not the United States's. So we really don't have a true defined United States of America just yet because we're still de dealing with Indian nations. We're still dealing with Britain, whom has refused to leave. After all, she still has the mightiest power in the world. So do you think she's going to want to just leave that simple? Heck no. The U.S. agents, you know, where... I, I, this should be pointed out, you know, the British Indian agents, or the British Indian trading agents, rather, they had a lot of, they had far more advantages than the U.S. agents did. And the U.S. agents were at a disadvantage because they had no records of any long-term alliances with Indian tribes, most notably tribes along the western frontier. What did the British always provide the Indians with? gifts, but what did the British not ask in return? Land. Okay, you know, the British did establish their posts, but remember, folks, the British, many of the British uh, people married into Indian families. Joint marriage, it's a joint union, so they're not, um, they're not interested in cheating the Indians out of their ancestral lands. The, um, the settlers, that is, whom are itching to, to move uh, westward in, into what we now know as present-day Indiana, Illinois, um, Michigan, Wisconsin, they're itching to find uh, their groove. I mean, you know, Ohio's already a state. That's the first of the five northwest, what we know as the Northwest Territory. Uh, but for the Indians, they know that the British are the real thing because the British are not interested in taking advantage of them. They're not interested in land. What they're interested in providing are gifts that promote 
peaceful relations amongst both uh, parties. The United States doesn't have anything in, um, in, in a written document form that says, hey, we've had an alliance with this tribe for 30 plus years or more. What action uh, did Nicholas Blalvin, we've mentioned him um, many of times, but he's still out there. Uh, when we d discussed him about him yesterday, we learned that he um, went, he left Washington to go and wanted to go back to Prairie du Chen, but couldn't because of, for a safety reason. So he um, stayed put in St. Louis. So what action did Nicholas Blalvin um, partake in? that ultimately backfired on him. You know, even the most, um, even the smartest of people who have the best intentions on trying to get um, a resolution achieved with an existing conflict can make mistakes that do backfire on them. So what exactly did Walvin do? He wrote letters to um, multiple men of high-ranking status in and around Prairie du Chen, he was under the assumption that the men whom he was writing these letters to were um, going to side with the Americans. Little did he know, though, that, that the receivers whom, whom got their hands on these letters had loyalties to England. Okay, it's bad enough that the uh, receivers had their loyalties to England, but the letters ended up getting into the hands of British military officers. And it created a lot of ruckus, meaning that it created a lot of worry. It created a lot of tension, fear, um, to the point where if the British did not get this under control, that they were in fear, that they knew that they risked... Um, the potential of losing um, alliances that they had gone above and beyond to have um, kept in play for almost close to 50 years. So the, um, the greatest effect, obviously, is amongst the Indian traders, not only in Prairie du Chen, um, well, not just the Indian traders on Prairie du Chen, but the residents of Prairie du Chen, but... If you think that's bad enough, let's find out what the Menominee Indian tribe did. They went as far as destroying personal property left behind from Nicholas Blalvin's home at Prairie du Chen. This is sadly an example of where Nicholas Blalvin said everything that was on his mind in, in the letters. And we have to remember, folks, there's no social media back then. There's no internet but letters themselves could get into the wrong hands. And if information that was placed in those letters was sensitive, it was going to create a frenzy regardless of the matter. So I, I hate to say this, but Nicholas Boalvin uh, more than likely shot himself in the foot. He probably didn't mean for it to happen, but it did. And what Balvin's going to realize is that uh, the following here, the content of the letters that Balvin um, wrote led all Indian peoples, a.k.a. Indian tribes, to take up arms by siding with Britain. That's That really puts Balvin at an even um, 
at an even more, what we call, um, at an even greater disadvantage. So now all Indian peoples, a.k.a. Indian tribes, are now going to be taking up arms by siding with Britain. And you can't blame them, considering that she as a nation had been looking after many of these Indian nations along the western frontiers after the French and Indian War ended. So why would any of these Indian nations want to just, what do you call it, um, jump the ship and say, hey, you know, I, I think I want to give the other nation a try. Why would you want to switch sides if the other nation can't fulfill its own promises by bringing medals or let alone by bringing any kind of valuable goods or even let alone bringing something that matches the equivalent of a wampum belt? If, if the other side, meaning the United States, hasn't fulfilled any of those promises, why would you want to jump over on the other side of the fence? It's like the old saying, the grass isn't always green on the other side. What did many Indian nations fear more than anything else? What do you think they feared? I think it's a, a pretty obvious answer. How about losing their lands? Losing their lands to whom, folks? The Americans. They knew, as I mentioned earlier, that the British weren't interested in seizing their lands. So, given the, given the fear that many Indian nations were uh, leery of the fact that they could run the risk of losing their lands, made them side with Britain, since Britain as a nation wasn't focused on personal gains, unlike the Americans, whom were the exact opposite. The British weren't looking for personal gratification. The Americans, I hate to say this, the Americans were. You know, as much as we don't probably want to believe at that moment in time, the inevitable reality, folks, is that once the Americans started making their way into these Indian territories, once they got established somewhere, they weren't going to stop. They were going to find ways to want to keep going. Now, um, most of us wouldn't know this man's name, but there's got to be somebody in Prairie du Chien who can be fulfilling, or not fulfilling, who can be providing Nicholas Balvin with um, essential information. Because Nicholas Balvin won't make it back to Prairie du Chien until after the start of 1814. So somebody's got to... Um, be there to give him information. His name is Joseph Roque. Joseph Rock, or what you might call Roque, spelled R-O-C, he was a representative to Nicholas Balvin at Prairie du Chin. He wrote Balvin around March of 1813, advising the consequences of what Balvin's letters had brought upon the Indian tribes living in and around Prairie du Chin. Obviously, this is not the news that Balvin wanted, but but as the old saying goes, sometimes, you know, we have to learn the hard way, even for actions that we didn't think would turn out the way they did, but yet they did. As for Joseph Roque, what do you think happened with him? Did he get executed or was he allowed to live? Well, he was allowed to live. How so? He took, he took an oath of renunciation against the American government. Think about it. I think that it's probably fair to say that the British, 
along with the Indian tribes, told this told Mr. Roke that, hey, look, if you want to remain put at Prairie du Chen, you're going to have to do uh, the following. You're going to have to give up your um, allegiance to America. And by doing so, you're going to switch your allegiance to us. And once you do that, we will treat you as one of our own. And, you know, think about it. You'll pretty much get like the equivalent of a pardon. So that's what happens. So Joseph Roque take, takes an oath of renunciation against the American government and in return accepts employment in the British Indian Department. It's kind of like the equivalent of maybe what we might think of as a witness protection program. Of course, when I think of witness protection program, I think of um, the mob, uh, the organized crime, and how mobsters who were arrested and you know they could have spent many years behind bars but they but some mobsters made um plea deals where they were would go where they agreed to go to a witness protection program but it meant going into the courtroom and testifying against other fellow mobsters the greatest example that i can think of was from uh, martin scorsese's uh film goodfellas that came out in the early 90s with ray liotta joe pesci and robert de niro uh, Ray Liotta played uh, the late Henry Hill, who died about nine or ten years ago, whom had ties to the uh, Bonanno crime family out of uh, Pittsburgh. And um, Ray Liotta, at the very end of the movie, uh, testified against um, Jimmy Conway, who was played by Robert De Niro. Of course, um, Henry Hill had looked up to Jimmy Conway for many of years, but... The loyalty was shattered as a result of uh, Henry Hill's accepting a plea agreement where he would go to the witness protection program, but it meant testifying against Jimmy Conway, as well as another man um, who, whose name was uh, Paul Cicero, a.k.a. Pauly. So the bottom line, folks, is that even in, um, in the 19th century, there were people who had to take uh, oaths of renunciation just to be able to survive not just for them as individuals, but maybe their families. And that's the same thing that happened in the movie Goodfellas. Henry Hill had to think about his family, too, if they were going to survive as well. Where exactly uh, would Robert Dixon go about conducting a council amongst the Indian nations? It's a well-known city in the Midwest, folks. Was it the following? Uh, was it Indianapolis? Was it Chicago? Or was it Cleveland? The answer is choice B, Chicago. Of course, uh, Illinois is not a state just yet, and the city of Chicago won't become an actual city in Illinois until the early 1830s. But in Chicago, that's where um, Robert Dixon would go about uh, conducting his council, and it would be at that location where um, American, where Indians would go about, um, Indian nations would go about attaining arms, ammunition, and presents, thanks in part to Robert Dixon and the overall leadership provided, which included a wampum belt and a pipe with a red handle for each Indian nation willing to go to war against America. Robert Dixon also planned to use Prairie du Chien, including a spot along the Illinois River, as a meeting ground 
as meeting ground places for attacks on St. Louis. Besides um, Nicholas Baldwin in St. Louis, isn't William Clark in St. Louis as well? Is it fair to say that maybe, um, yes, our government, United States government, is located in Washington, D.C., but is it fair to say that there could be an interim uh, makeshift government station in St. Louis uh, for Western frontier purposes? Perhaps so. Who was uh, Maurice Blondeau? I didn't know anything about him until I read the book, but it turns out that he is a sub-agent to the Sac Indian Nation. Okay, well, is it fair to say that maybe the Sac Indian Nation is allied, has, al has allied itself with uh, Britain? It turns out that the Sac Nation is undecided still. So, Maurice Blondeau is going to keep Nicholas Boilvin in the loop with activity going on amongst Robert Dixon, the British, and the Indians, whom are already, that is, the Indian nations, Indian tribes that are already aligned with Britain. But the Sac Nation remained hesitant uh, to join the British. Boilvin himself provided gifts to Blondeau for providing Sac Indian tribe upon a council meeting. You know, Boilvin... He's gone through too many ups and downs. You know, he didn't, I mean, it was an unfortunate thing that happened, and he probably did anger a lot of Indian uh, tribes who could have uh, potentially aligned themselves with the United States. But I would think it's fair to say that Boilvin himself is desperate. He's desperate because he's doing whatever he can do to keep some kind of peace afloat. He to maintaining um, alliances that are potentially fractious right now at this time. But his biggest concern is the Sac and the Fox, considering that neither one of these nations, or these tribal nations, along Prairie du Chen, neither one of these nations had made up their minds in terms of taking an oath of allegiance with England. So in other words, they still are showing some form of neutrality, but for uh, Nicholas Boilvin and uh, for uh, Maurice Blondeau, they know that if the Sac and the Fox were not to join the Americans, that any cause for alliances or unity in going to war with England in terms of Indians and Americans side by side is pretty much uh, slim to none. Well, we've uh, covered a lot of ground, as always, and uh, thank you again for being on the air uh, and for listening to uh, my podcasts. Um, I appreciate all, what all of you have done in getting the word out. It's fair to say that um, that this war and the conflict and the conflicts that have led up to it have been um, they've been trying. Um, just because we may have won our war, may have won a war against England thirty years ago being the grandest of the wars, the American Revolution, it didn't mean that, um, that there was normalcy in the aftermath of the British surrender as well as the Treaty of Paris from 1783. We, we as a nation are still in, in a work of progress. But the Constitution itself is already facing a, um, a crisis, that is a war crisis, in terms of whether or not maybe our government will sur will survive. After all, we are 
we are facing a second war for independence. It's already begun, and it hasn't started off well. Uh, so when I'm on the air again next time with you all, we're going to be discussing more about Robert Dixon and how he will go about uniting the tribes. It seems like he's already united the tribes, but maybe there's more to uh, learning about how he will go about uniting the tribes that we didn't discuss um, here in this podcast episode. Well, thank you again as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon with you all. Uh, continue to stay safe, and um, I just want to say this here, you know, with the world we live in today is very, um, it's different, and it's, um, I don't know if sad's the right word, it's, 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 there's just a lot of uncertainty out there, but my mission with podcasting is to uh, spread the word about history and while yes it's not pretty at, at times we still have to learn about those unpleasant trees that will hopefully over time make us better um, observers of history with the hopes that whatever happened in the past does not repeat itself not only in the present but come the future so you know if there are skeptics out there who aren't interested in history don't let those people stop you from learning what it is that you want to know more about that you were not taught from a previous uh, setting, um, regardless of, of when that may have uh, been in your life early on. I'm not trying to get this, I'm not trying to make this political under no circumstances whatsoever, but just know that, hey, if there is stuff that you want to learn about, I'll do whatever I can to, to share that um, information with you all. But my job is to make sure that I um, present to you all relevant information, and not just relevant information, but information that can be discussed in a peaceful manner without anyone thinking as though their feelings were hurt, because that's not what this is all about, folks. So thank you again um, for listening. Thank you for uh, for understanding what it is that my podcasts um are um, intended to focus on and that at the end of each episode all of you can walk away knowing that you learned something that you didn't know before and walking away knowing that hey I've gained more knowledge now than I did years ago about this subject so please keep in mind that that's what this is all about I'm not in it for the income I'm in it for the outcome thank you again have a great evening and uh, stay, stay safe and I look forward to being back on the air with you all next time. Take care.